Before we get started today, um, we sadly acknowledge the passing of one of uh, the great amateur astronomers of our time, who was uh, Terence Dickinson. From 1981 until the 2000s, Terence wrote newspaper columns on astronomy and several books, including Nightwatch and the Backyard Astronomer's Guide, which he co-authored with uh, Alan Dyer. He also appeared on Quirks and Quirks, Canada's weekly science show on CBC. And like many of you, uh, Terence was formative uh, to my astronomy journey. Uh, my mother used to cut out his newspaper articles, which had these little neat sky charts with them, and she left them for me to read over my Saturday morning breakfast. I later received a copy of the Backyard Astronomer's Guide for Christmas and some binoculars, and then I bought a copy of Nightwatch for myself and followed his direction to get an 8-inch Dobsonian to start. So he'll definitely uh, be missed in uh, in the astronomy community as well as by his loved ones. So um, just before we get going here, uh, we're joined with... Uh, Shane and, and Rick, any any thoughts on the passing of uh, Terrence Dickinson before we get on to our episode? Pretty I think, similar. Oh, go yeah. ahead, Rick. I think that um, your, your introduction is, is really good. He influenced so many people across Canada and around the world. Uh, his books were number one, uh, written with Alan Dyer often. And um, great to thumb through and you learn so much from it. So he'll be greatly missed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Chris, similar to you, my my first two books were by, uh, well, were the same. Uh, the Backyard Astronomer's Guide was my first one. And then I bought Night Watch. And uh, also like you, Chris, followed his advice. My first telescope was uh, an eight inch daub. And I even bought the binoculars that they recommended. I think it was in the third version of Backyard Astronomer's Guide. And I believe they were 10 by 50 uh, Bushnell legacies or something like that. And uh, so anyway, I purchased those and certainly got me off on the right foot for, uh, you know, my, my new, or at that time, my new hobby of astronomy. Sounds good. Well, thanks guys. With that, we're going to move on to uh, our episode. I'm going to do our regular introduction now. Light Pollution with special guest Rick Husiak on episode 299 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And joining us today is our long time, perhaps long suffering friend, <laughs> Rick Husiak. So uh, welcome, Rick. And uh, we'll read your bio here before we get going, but just welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Hi, Shane. It's been a long time since we've met in person. So this is great. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, just and and I put just a, a bit of your bio, um, but I think it's uh, it's something people will enjoy. So, Rick is widely recognized as the face of SP, which is the Saskatchewan Summer Star Party, because he's been operating as a lead organizer and reg registration tent ring leader for about the past twenty seven years. Rick, I think something like that. At least. Oh. At uh -oh. least. So if the Saskatchewan Ever Star Party, when, when the Saskatchewan Summer Star Party went missing during uh, the pandemic, they, they put Rick's face on the milk cartons. I'll put it that way. He's so <laughs> integral to, to the program. Um, one of the things that Rick does that I think listeners would be uh, very interested in is he has a list of carbon stars in the RASC Observer's Handbook. And at some point, Rick, we should talk. That is, that is my favorite list that I've never talked about on the podcast. Sure, yeah. we'll talk about it in a future episode. Yeah, I think so, for sure. Rick has also submitted over 180,000 variable star observations to the AAVSO. I think my note is out of date, though. Is is it 180,000? or you, you got over 200,000, didn't you? No, not quite. Not I'm quite. Still, uh, it's, it's a goal. 
it's close. I think you're getting close. Maybe we'll put it that way. Rick is also an avid meteorite collector who appeared on shows such as the Meteorite Hunters, and he also helped in the recovery of, I don't know how much it was, but like some sort of tonnage of the Buzzard Cooley because you were like one of the lead people who was up there with uh, a magnet on a stick and picking up big and small rocks of, of all kinds during the Buzzard Cooley fall in Saskatchewan. Uh, in 2004, um, Rick got his own piece of astronomical real estate when asteroid 4143 Husiak was named after him. So uh, again, welcome to the show, Rick. This is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah. And uh, you've been head of the ARIA, or you've been involved in the RESC Light Pollution and Abatement Committee, head of the RESC uh, Light Pollution Initiatives here in, uh, in Saskatchewan. And uh, also you've been involved in the Saskatchewan Eco Network and... You were named a Saskatchewan environmental champion. And oh, the, the big thing I meant to mention, Rick, is that you were also <laughs> the the groundwork amateur side, RESC side coordinator for declaring the uh, Grasslands Dark Sky Preserve. I remember you, you were showing me all the photos of running back and forth with uh, all those papers and, and documentations for the Grasslands National Park. So we, we sort of, in many ways, have you to thank for that uh, dark sky preservation of the Grasslands, which is our favorite spot to go observing. Awesome. It was a great team to work with. Uh, the people at Grasslands were number one and everybody's totally on board. Yeah. And we're looking forward to seeing you uh, in the grasslands this summer, because we're going to get together over the uh, over the May long weekend, and then uh, I think it's like the twentieth and twenty first of uh, of July there in the West Block should be a good time. Looking forward to it. Best guys in the world. Yeah, should be should be really good. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's been a few years since we've met up and done that. I think just because. Um, Last year, our schedules conflict, and then for the two years prior, um, well, Grasslands only let me and, like, one other person go down um, the year before last, and then last year, schedules conflict, and the year before, it was canceled outright, although I did go down and go observing. There was no star party, but I did go observing that year in Grasslands National Park, so it was all good. Let's see. So Shane and I have done almost, this is the 299th episode, and... Uh, we were talking about this uh, a few weeks back just after Christmas, and we were surprised to discover we've never done an episode on light pollution. <laughs> and so we thought part of it was, I think that we had, every time we talked about it, we were like, oh, we'll get Rick on to talk about that at some point. We'll get Rick on to talk about that at some point. And then we're like, we're getting really far along in this podcast now. We've got to get Rick on to talk about light pollution. So with that, Rick, what is light pollution exactly? What are we talking about? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It's light that shines where you don't need it, don't want it. The light that shines basically sideways or up into the sky does no work at all. And light that is simply too bright for its application. So all light pollution is wasted light. So when we talk about light pollution, we're not talking about the light that does useful work. We're talking about all the waste that shines where it doesn't need to be. And it causes um, enormous amount of damage. And the, the big part about it is it's all conservable. We shouldn't be wasting it at all because if it does no work, why are we shining it there? It costs energy. It, it, it destroys the environment. Yeah, for sure. How, how does light pollution get measured, Rick? Um, there's several different methods. I mean, um, if you want to go by the technical thing is you're going to measure the amount of lumens per, per square meter. And um, you, you know, if it exceeds some sort of value, then... Uh, it's too bright. Uh, if it shines sideways, then it creates glare, uh, trespass, 
um, other ecological damage. So, you know, you can measure it all, all kinds of different ways. Um, for maps of the world, where you see light pollution maps, it's measured from satellites with photometers. Um, but you know it's there because basically it's usually glaring in your eyes or causing you not to be able to see at night. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly, you know, us as amateur astronomers, um, I still remember, you know, when I started in amateur astronomy with the eight-inch daub that I mentioned earlier, uh, I think I observed from my backyard here in the city probably for the first year. I never left. I never went to a dark site. I think I did close to half the Messier list from my backyard, including the Andromeda galaxy. And then, you know, I joined the local club and I went out to the dark site that they have, which is still, you know, somewhat light polluted. You know, it's about 30 minutes outside of the city, but much darker than my backyard. And I couldn't believe the difference, you know, no light or reduced light pollution made on the views, particularly of M31. It just blew my mind. And it was really at that point that I just stopped observing deep sky objects in my backyard because it just didn't do them justice. And it was a big awareness moment for me as to how impactful light pollution is to uh, our ability to observe some of those objects. Well, we're only one generation away from people that grew up under a dark sky. And it's, it's really sad. I mean, my parents um, and probably your parents lived in an environment that was so much darker than we have right now. Um, you know, a lot of us walked out of the back door and we had a pristine dark sky. Um, and, and I miss that from, from my childhood. Uh, it's hard now to walk out anywhere and not see light. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I remember one summer, this was quite a few years ago, we were in the grasslands doing our public night. Uh, we had our telescope set up and I can't remember how many people were, were coming through, but I remember one gentleman in particular, I think he was from uh, the Eastern US, don't recall exactly where he was retired. So he, you know, I assume he was probably, you know, in or around his 60s. And he was so excited to be at Grasslands to see the Milky Way for the first time in his life. And, mm -hmm. and I couldn't believe it, you know, but to your point, Rick, uh, you know, there's a lot of people now that just don't have, uh, you know, easy access or maybe any access to a, a sky where you can even see the Milky Way. Well, the latest studies are showing that somewhere 75 to 80% of people in the world have never seen a Milky Way. Um, it, it, it astonishes me. I mean, I grew up, in that dark environment and Milky Way is part of, part of my life. Um, you, you go to good places with pristine skies like grasslands and you realize halfway through the night, you're standing there and you've got seven shadows and, and the seven shadows are being cast by the seven brightest stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. And you go, this is what the world used to be like. And, and we've lost all that. You can't even see stars in the sky anymore, let alone shadows from the stars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. I remember when I was a kid. The first time I noticed light pollution was just uh, a little, a little before I get into astronomy. I mean, I was always interested in astronomy, but it's around the time when my mother started cutting out the uh, the, the star charts from from Terence Dickinson, and and I went out. It had snowed, and I was playing in the snow in my backyard at night, and I noticed that the whole sky was sort of this orangey pink. And I walked inside and I was like, how come the sky is so bright? And my dad came out and looked and said, oh, it's because it snowed. 
and all the street lights and everything in our little tiny town were, were reflecting off the snow and then the clouds were still there and they were bouncing off the clouds and then bouncing back down. So it was just sort of brightening everything up. And I remember as, as a small child just being so disappointed that, uh, that it was that bright out because I thought it would just be fun to be sort of out uh, playing in the snow when it was dark, but it wasn't even remotely dark. And of course now, uh, you know, here we are probably, you know, close to 30 or 40 years later, things are, are much, much brighter than they were back then. <laughs> Yeah, our environment's brightened so much. It's um, it, it, it's super disappointing. I mean, the light pollution is one of the easiest pollutants to remove from the environment. You know, basically, if your light's on and you don't need it, well, turn it off. Um, if your light's glaring somewhere, put a shield on it so it just lights up the area that you need it to shine on. Um, but um, if you look in terms of cost per light, it's cheap. Um, it, the electricity to run a light you know, to run a street light costs like $20 a year. So it's not a really huge issue to the people that have to provide the power to that, um, you know, as opposed to other other pollutants that cause an, an enormous amount of, of uh, damage and cost. So it's second nature for us just to leave our lights on all the time. And there's so many misconceptions over uh, light in society. Uh, you know, people feel safer with lights, but it, it doesn't actually... Uh, provide any better safety. Matter of fact, in a lot of cases, it, it's the opposite. It provides uh, uh, the opportunity for uh, crimes of opportunity. Um, uh, crime actually goes up if lights are on. So, you know, we have all these misconceptions. And if we don't educate people about them, we're going to have a, a world that's as bright as day all the time. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the ways that some, some of our listeners may be familiar with uh, measuring uh, the brightness uh, of the night sky is the uh, sky quality meter or the SQM meter. Um, do you just want to talk about that briefly and maybe how that's that's used for uh, for measuring light pollution and and maybe what uh, some people might be doing with the results, if you can? Sure. Um, SQMs or sky quality meters is kind of the standard measurement tool that's used to look at uh, how bright the sky is. And it's basically a measurement of um, sky glow that you can see within the within the beam of the of the little photometer. Um, so you can measure the darkness based on the a scale called magnitude per square arc second. Um, so it's an astronomical term that's that's used as a baseline. So the best skies in the world uh, basically are looking at um, measurements around uh, twenty one. Um, 21st magnitude per, per square arc second. That's super dark. Um, and as you get to brighter environments, um, it scales towards um, ba- basically a less transparent sky, uh, more scattered light. It's hard to describe the, the actual um, magnitude scale on the photometer, but you can use one of these devices to look uh, to see how bad your sky is. Um, there are programs around the world that do use the information from the SQMs uh, to do sky monitoring. Um, but there's also another really cool program, just very simple using your eyes called um, the globe at night. And basically you use your eyes as a photometer to count the number of stars you can see within certain constellations. And um, from that, you can gauge how bad the light pollution is in, in your area. As a matter of fact, there's a really, really good study that just came out by uh, Chris Kaiba um, and all his um, our research partners uh, that looked at the globe at night results where 
um, they've done 10 years worth of monitoring by citizen scientists all over the world. And they looked at the number of stars they could see in certain areas, recorded it, put it into a database. And what they found out was that over 10 years, the quality of the sky has deteriorated extremely rapidly. A huge increase in light pollution. As a matter of fact, um, the sky brightness has been increasing by 10% every year, year after year. Oof. And that it, that's um, hugely disturbing. Um, in, um, I think, 2017, then uh, NASA SOMI NPP satellite measured sky brightness from space, basically looking back down onto the ground, measuring the light pollution they could see shining directly up at the satellite. And they found that light pollution was increasing at 2.2% per year. Um, but they knew that there was some skew in the data because the sensitivity of the photometers was such that they couldn't see certain bands of, of light. So they, they knew they're measuring um, uh, light, light pollution increasing. And um, this Citizen Science Globe at Night project shows that that was severely understated. You know, they, instead of 2.2% per year, it's 10% per year. So truly disturbing because about um, a decade ago, we started converting from uh, gas discharge lighting, basically um, uh, high-pressure sodium lights in, in um, cities, the orange lights, going to LED lights, which are much bluer. And that was done basically... Uh, by a, let me say the word, a greenwash to save um, money. Um, the effect of the LED conversion is very interesting because you would think that if you had a light that uh, basically used a tenth of the power that the, that the um, gas tubes did, you would see an actual saving. But what we actually saw was a huge increase in light pollution, which means the amount of light coming out um, basically exceeded the amount of light pollution that was being produced by the old lights that were even poorly shielded. And so there's no um, bump in the data that shows there's actually a reduction in light pollution. Um, the line just continued to increase at 2.2% even after the LED conversions. And that kind of implies that the amount of power being used um, in the world is actually increasing as well. So um, it's, it, it, it's disturbing that changing lights for the reason of power saving is not also saving the skies from light pollution. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Just as you, as you were uh, talking there, Rick, I, I looked up the Globe at Night. Uh, their website is www.globeatnight.org. And uh, so this, this month is, uh, is their campaign month. And so last year during February, they were able to get 19,950 observations and uh, they're asking people to, to contribute um, their data and uh, they're looking to pass uh, 20,000 data points for 2023. So if, if we have 50 listeners out of the uh, uh, one to 1,200 people who listen to the show, um, you know, if we can just get 50 of our listeners to to go on to the Globe at Night and uh, and submit uh, a data point, then that would help the Globe at Night uh, pass their goal from from last year. Well, if you're an amateur astronomer, especially, you should be doing this. Yeah, 
um, you know, it is it is your legacy that will will uh, be affected here if we can't cure light pollution. And we're not going to cure it. We're just going to be able to slow it down, I hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, participating in programs that are easy, like uh, the Globe at Night, is something that you can do. Uh, what's kind of sad is that there's more contributors who are non-astronomers to Globe at Night than there are astronomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a citizen science project. Uh, so that means that anybody can do it. You don't have to be an astronomer. You don't have to have experience. You need, need to be able to count stars on a on a, um, a star map that they that's provided on their website. So they it's also, very simple. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, I was just I'm just looking at their website. It's pretty cool. So we were talking about the sky quality meter. I actually have a sky quality meter here. I'm just going to go grab it here in a second. Um, but uh, they've developed an app. And I, I think they're using it as a little bit of a fundraiser for themselves, but they don't charge very much. It's about a, a buck ninety nine American. You download the app to your phone, and then you can use uh, one of your mobile devices for actually helping uh, to take those those data points. Yeah, there's some good photometer software that you can do. Um, I know it's available for iPhones. I'm not sure it's available for Androids. Yeah, um, but yeah, download it, try it out. Um, the, the sad part is, as, as I said, over time, <laughs> your photometer is going to get swamped if, if we can't uh, stop light pollution. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you just mentioned, Rick, uh, was legacy. And that really stands out for me when we talk about light pollution. And, you know, I think, you know, all amateur astronomers really need to think about that word um, and and really think about, you know, the advocacy around light pollution, um, whether it's like you mentioned, turning your light off, you know, because you're not in your backyard or, or, or lobbying, you know, municipal governments or whatever it might be to help, um, help develop more awareness. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think when, when we talk about over lighting and, and all of the issues with it, um, there's a lot of decision makers that really just don't have the awareness of, you know, the, the cause and effect here and, um, you know, some of the benefit gains of reducing light pollution. And I think when, when the story is told, it's a compelling story and I don't, you know, I, there's not too many people that would opt in for more light, you know, or unnecessary light maybe is a better way to put it. You're leading into so many uh, fingers that we can, um, go along, uh, Light pollution affects so much in the environment. And uh, one thing that it does affect is bird migration. Um, lit cities at night will, will kill birds that are basically collide with the windows. And a few years ago, I had the um, pleasure of meeting Michael Majeur, who is the uh, um, CEO of FLAP, or Fatal Light Awareness Program. Uh, and their mandate is to stop collisions with skyscrapers at night. Um, and they do that by promoting reduction of light pollution, turn the lights and skyscrapers off when the buildings are closed. And they've got programs going on all over North America. Um, but I asked him, I said, how many birders who follow these poor birds that collide with the buildings actually lobby to reduce light pollution and lobby to help flap? And he said, oh, less than 3% of birders will participate by writing a letter to stop bird collisions. And I said, gee, by coincidence, that's just about exactly how many astronomers will write a letter to complain about light pollution. So we need to get on board. You know, 3% of, of our astronomers in 
in Canada here, 3% of astronomers around the world, is not enough of a lobby to get our politicians to actually do their jobs. So, you know, if you see light pollution, you have to call it out. Mm-hmm. If you see an article in a newspaper and you can comment on it, comment on it. Write a letter to the editor. You know, there's so many ways. Um, go to your council and tell them to pass a light pollution bylaw. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty wild. You know, I was uh, I studied public policy in in graduate school and only just just a few years ago, really. And uh, I remember one of one of the um, test examples they would often raise um, was th- that that light is a public good, and that if you live near a road that has a lot of bright lights, that you were sort of a side beneficiary of of this light in your yard because it had this magical um, you know crime deterrent property and uh, you know I, I kept raising my hand and saying hang on wait a second like what's the data on crime deterrence and light like you're, you're making an assumption here and and they kind of would always shoot me down and say well like it's just basically in- implicitly known that we all know that light at night uh, deters crime and has all these other great benefits, um, but it's simply unfounded. I, I think it's just this big assumption that most people have made about light, and uh, unfortunately, it it couldn't be more wrong because um, even in talking, and I, I went and talked to uh, uh, one of the city planners at the city of of Regina about three years ago, and she told me that in fact, when they're having uh, challenges with crime or or other activities they don't want at night. The first thing they do is they turn off all the lights in that area because the criminals were, were benefiting by having light in in spots that uh, were otherwise seldomly uh, uh, used at night, and uh, and 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 that makes a lot more sense if you think about it. If you think about you know the the the, the Watergate break-in, they they see the flashlights going, but if the whole building was lit up at night, and you see a few people walking around, that just looks normal, right? Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. I mean, the thing about light is it it is useful in society. I mean, it allows us to operate after dark and we do have a 24-hour society so society deems light as necessary and and useful uh light pollution is not uh, necessary and useful and and as you said with with crime um it it works just about the opposite way um if you have a lit environment light attracts and if you're using it properly light attracts people to a, a a concert at night that's good, but when the concert's done, um, and you should be turning the lights off, not leaving them on, because you want to use that light now to control your your crowd. You want everybody to go home, and go away, and so in a in a lit environment, if someone's hanging around, it it's because the light has invited them to be there. You expect a person to be walking around a lit environment. Now you don't know the intention of that person. So, you know, if you light up your backyard, um, well. If you use a, the term light invites, it invites someone walking by to see what you've got in your backyard, jump the fence, snatch what you can see, jump the fence, and you're gone. You know, if, you, if your yard's dark, your yard's safer, you, you can't see what's going on back there. You know, there, people who are still scared of, of the dark and really feel that the light's going to protect them really should put their lights in motion detectors. Yeah. Because if someone jumps in your backyard, the, the motion detector comes on. And uh, then you should naturally run to your back window and see what's going on. But people also even get used to motion detectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, um, the branches of, of your tree sway in the wind and, you, and your motion detectors 
um, always setting the light off and you get used to it. You stop looking out the back window. Yeah. You know, so just turn it off and, and it's easier that way. Yeah. I mean, there's so many examples of this um, city of Chicago a long time ago now um, had problems in there and with crime. So they lit up their alleys and their uh, crime increased by 30%. <laughs> wow. okay. um, Des Moines, Iowa um, couldn't pay their power bills. So they shut a third of their streetlights off and um, their crime actually dropped 17%. I think Detroit did that too, didn't they recently? Detroit also dropped their, their light as well. Yeah, they, they had the same problem. They couldn't pay for their um, streetlights. And over everybody's objection, they, they turned streetlights off in a whole area, a bunch of areas and the crime went down. Yeah. You know, and it's simply because of that. You know, it's, um, if you can't see where you're going... Um, then you don't go there. And it involves with criminals too. You pointed out, Chris, that um, you know, if, if you're in a dark environment using a flashlight, you draw immediate attention to, to yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, graffiti reduces if you um, turn your lights off. Yeah. Graffiti artists want people to see their, uh, the palette all the time. You know, they're, they're not doing that work for it not to be visible. So they pick brightly lit areas at night um, because in the middle of the night, no one's around to see them painting the graffiti anyway. Mm-hmm. And now it's visible 24 hours a day. You know, and, and also 95% of crime occurs in the daytime. So why do you want to light up your night and basically make it daytime? Because now 100% of your crime is, is occurring during lit hours. Speaking of the light, um, one of the things, this is, this is actually, in a way, this, is, this prompted me to reach out to you because this is something that, that I've noticed, especially over the past, um, it seems like even just the past year, I've noticed more and more of this. You touched on a little bit, and that's some of these new higher powered um, LED lights. And, um, and they're selling very small lights that are, and it's hard to imagine how bright a little light can be. Like, um, out at my dark sky site, um, a, a person installed, it's a very tiny light. It's, it's no bigger than like a flashlight. They actually swapped it out because even, even as somebody who wanted to light up, a uh, an area for security purposes, they even found it too light. So they, they changed it out. Um, but they're selling tiny little lights that are so powerful. You can almost light up like a, like a city block with, with a light that's about, you know, the size of a, of a traditional flashlight now. And then I see, um, they're swapping, people are putting, you know, what, what might've been just a small, um, yard light that might illuminate, um, you know, a tiny bit of yard and it might be a bit bright for maybe a neighbor or two neighbors over. Now I see people will put a light on a house or a cottage that even from a mile or, or a couple kilometers away, that light is, is overwhelmingly bright. It's, it's brighter than, uh, Venus, uh, you know, some of these tiny lights people are putting up, um, even from a, from a good distance will be you know, 10 times brighter than Venus, say, and, uh, and incredibly uh, distractive. And I, you know, I feel like not only is that bad for, uh, <laughs> for us as astronomers, it, it, it's probably uh, really bad for, uh, for that local environment as well. But is there much that we can do when, when it comes to lights um, 
that that are being created, you know, simply because the technology is there to create them that just far exceed um, what, what probably should should be allowed because it just seems like people shouldn't be allowed to go out and buy like a hundred thousand candle watt set of lights to to put around their property like that. Well, unfortunately, you can buy those, and people believe that the brighter the better. Uh, the best deterrent is a light that'll melt snow in your backyard. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense at all because if you have a light that bright, you can't see past it. Um, your your eyes are overwhelmed. I mean, you go into daylight mode uh, visually, trying to look into an otherwise dark backyard. Mm-hmm. So you really can't see when you've got that much glare going on. The problem is, is, is I mentioned this during the uh, issue of increasing light pollution in the world where creating LED lights did not actually reduce the amount of light pollution. And that's a partly offset by um, something called uh, Javon's paradox. And that means that when we invent new technology, we don't take advantage of that technology uh, to save anything. What we do is we just use it more. So the amount of LED lighting in our, in our environment has increased exponentially. Uh, if you go take a look at, uh, drive up and down the street and see how many Christmas decorations are still up right now. Mm-hmm. LEDs are cheaper to operate. Um, they're, they're brighter. <laughs> they last longer. Um, so people will put them up and use them all the time. They go, hey, they're cheaper to run, so I'm just going to use more. And in effect, uh, they're actually increasing their power bills because they're using way more than they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said uh, earlier, um, power is is relatively inexpensive. So you don't think about leaving your lights on all night and leaving a string of, you know, um, Griswold type (laughs) lighting um, up on your house all year round. The city of Saskatoon uh, decided uh, to extend the amount of holiday decorations. They they, they renamed it from Christmas decorations, went more neutral. Um, And Instead of going from December the 1st through to January 31st, I think was was what they did before, uh, they now basically go all winter long with decorative lighting. So uh, even though they've gone from incandescent lights to LED lights and save the power, now they're using so much more and they're using it for so much longer. So the net effect is not a reduction in, in power use. Uh, you know, a lot of that is justified by, well, we have to have a nice, friendly environment for, for people to to live in. It, it should be a fun environment. Um, well, I, I agree. You know, you can light a city uh, in a fun way, uh, but you have to use common sense. And you have to pay attention to destroying your environment in, in the meantime. And, and getting back to your intensity issue, uh, there's no regulation on how bright a light can be. And... Um, the, the misconception that a brighter light uh, somehow is better for you is, is, a, is a big issue. Um, when you're looking at personal lighting in your backyard, uh, we really should have bylaws in place that say, well, sure, melt snow in your backyard. I don't care. Um, but that light should not be able to trespass onto somebody else's property. You have the right of enjoyment of your own property and someone who imposes on it by trespassing their light onto your property is basically creating a, a nuisance that that shouldn't be created. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the right to darkness if if you want darkness in your backyard, just as much as a person thinks they have the right to light their yard. 
Yeah, and if and if people are wondering, you know, Rick is referring to melting snow in the backyard, and for sure, they and I've seen these online. It it is absolutely wild. You can buy a, a light that has an, an intensity and a heat uh, to it uh, so much so that I, I've seen one that not only you can use um, as an emergency light when you're hunting or whatever, but you can also like take a little frying pan and like fry an egg uh, w- with the uh, with the light in a special holder and a little tiny frying pan on it. You can fry an egg or or like cook a steak or something like that. That they're making lights that are that bright now. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's a byproduct of of how LED technology actually works. In order to get enough um, light out of that LED, they have to create that that little um, transistor junction to be a very, very small uh, area and generate that light in in a tiny, tiny little fraction, Um, put a lot of power through a small area. So basically, you've got this super, super bright point source. Um, as a matter of fact, LEDs are brighter than the surface of the sun. Um, so they can cause all kinds of issues. And you put enough of them together, you get this huge glaring light bomb that you can't even stare at. Um, yeah. They're way too bright. And of course, now you've got every commercial manufacturer in the world uh, providing lights. Um, their goal is to sell lights. It's not to, prov- to sell good lights. Yeah. You know, so they're not properly shielded. They're way too bright. Um, you know, they take advantage of people wanting brightness as opposed to wanting a light that actually does a really good job. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you, if you install a security light on the side of your building, you, it's really your responsibility to pick one that doesn't um, produce so much glare mm-hmm. and to pick one that's properly shielded that doesn't shine over the fence to your neighbor's property. Mm-hmm. You know, we have bylaws to protect um, your neighbor um, against excessive sound and noise bylaws. Yep. You can't play your stereo at, you know, on, on 12 uh, at three in the morning. Um, and that seems to be acceptable in society to regulate that. Um, but to have, you know, 12,000 lumens of light shining across your fence into, into the neighbor's window is perfectly acceptable. Yep. And the, the um, argument is all, well, if you don't like my light, why don't you buy some um, uh, blinds, some thicker blinds for 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 your house. And you go well. Why should I pay for that? Yeah. Um, why don't you just shine your light properly? It shouldn't cost me money because of your negligence. Mm-hmm. I've was, considered a twelve foot fence to help shield some of my neighbor's light, but uh, you the can cost consider it. But you know what? There's a bylaw that says you can't have a twelve foot fence. Yeah, That's fair right. enough. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, can I violate that bylaw? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I, if I do that, I get charged with that and I have to cut my fence off yep. yet. Somebody shines a light into your window and you can't sleep at night. No problem. One thing that, uh, just as I was prepping for, for this show and it's something that hadn't occurred to me as much before, but kind of when I, when I say this, you guys are going to get it is that, um, I, I was sort of reading about, you know, what are some of the long-term consequences of, of uh, light at night. One of the things they hit upon in one of the articles I read, I wish I could remember uh, who it was by, um, was that, for example, uh, back like when when you were young, Rick, and, and when our parents were young, um, the people were inspired by the stars. You know, um, they they could dream of creating spaceships to to go to the stars or to go to the moon or to do different things of that nature. 
But now, like you said, with 80% of the population growing up in, in regions where uh, you, you can hardly even see a star, maybe you can see uh, half a dozen stars or, or a few dozen stars throughout the course of the year, you, you'll be able to see some of the bright planets in the moon a little bit. Um, but people who live in that environment, children who are growing up in that environment, will not be inspired by the stars. They might wonder what that one or two bright uh, points of light are in the nighttime sky, but there there could be this sort of strange um, lack of dreaming knock-on effect um, for for the youth, for people that are young now, and and for those that may be born in the near future. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a big problem. I mean, if you don't recognize what your environment is around you, then you take no responsibility for it. You know. Um, all, almost all cultures in the world have got um, basically legends uh, of coming from the stars. You know, um, so I, I think it's important to to preserve the old cultural values that way. Um, maybe we just don't care anymore. Maybe we don't care that one day we might have to go to the stars, um, even to save our planet that we're destroying every day. Um, but you know, how do you instill on someone that going out of the city and and seeing stars is wonderful? How do you instill on someone that uh, when I came to Saskatoon forty some years ago, I could actually see the Milky Way from mm -hmm. from Saskatoon? Good luck if I can see a handful of stars now. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we're losing so much here, uh, mm -hmm. and yet you you see some re more responsible um, uh, responses from some. Uh, corporations, you know, there there are huge corporations in the world that recognize that we have environmental issues. Um, you know, four or five years ago, Subaru had a a, a great campaign. Um, I, I don't know if you remember the commercials where the, yeah. the dad would pile the kids into the car, mm -hmm. they drive out into the country, and the kids, are, what what's going on here? Why are we doing this? And they step out and they'd see the Milky Way, mm -hmm. and you know, it was to me a totally inspiring. Uh, type of type type of sales. I mean, they're trying to sell cars, but you look at the corporate culture of mm -hmm. you know um, companies like Subaru, and they look at the environment around them because they know it's important. In, you know, full, dis in full disclosure, we should we should mention that Ryan and I are both Subaru drivers. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh, I never, here actually, we go. never even thought never even <laughs> thought of that in this context. But they're just looking but for yes, extended yeah. warranty now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay, they're, so, they're getting, so let's advertise old, Subaru, right? They're older <laughs> Subarus. I'll put it that way now. 97% of Subarus are still on the road. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, that aside, their corporate culture is to look at the impact they have on the environment. Yeah. Um, it, their factory uh, produces less than 1% waste. So how many companies can you say, you know, do that? Um, you, you look at companies that um, are, are looked at as polluters, like, you know, Shell, um, Shell Oil. Uh, at night, they turn 100% of their lights off on their service stations when they're closed. Oh, is that they, so? They understand. Yeah. You know, huh. their, their canopy lights are off, their signs are off. Um, the inside of the building lights are off. Um, they understand. Why are, we, why are we wasting? Why are we spending money that we don't need to spend? So, sort of a weird instance of, of an organization that might otherwise... Uh, be a large polluter actually maybe being less of a polluter than some of our municipalities. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, <laughs> it, when you look at, at who's polluting and who isn't, it's the medium sized guys that are the biggest issue. Yeah. Uh, the small guys can't afford it. 
Um, they shut their lights off. They, they manage their power bills. The big guys have this corporate responsibility. They want to look good in the world. The medium-sized guys, um, they don't they don't care. They, you know, they, they look at um, the company and go, oh, you know, I've, I've got better things to do than to worry about environmental issues. Yeah. I got to say this, though. I got to say this. This occurs to me just as we're talking. I worked for a medium-sized company. And, uh, well, they were a medium-sized company. They got bought out by your company. But, um, <laughs> yeah, they, they put up all these LEDs around the building as security lights. And then I was like, oh, the, you know, I, I said to them, you know, there's no evidence that this kind of stuff works. And then we got robbed. <laughs> the truck pulls up takes whatever they were taken and then leaves. And we had all the footage of it because everything's lit up, you know, had everything we could, um, but nothing could be done about it just because of like, whatever, they never caught the people. And uh, so they, they had spent all this money on putting the lights, all, all this stuff up that were on 24 seven. And then when it actually came down to it, it, it didn't result in any benefit and do you think they turn those they and it's not like afterwards they were like well i guess we made as well shut the lights off and save uh, a couple hundred bucks a month uh, no they just they just left the lights roll well okay so let's get into <laughs> what they really could do yeah put those lights on motion detectors because led lights are instant on so you can yeah. put them on a motion detector save all the power until someone drives in there lights it up your cameras operate just fine because you've got light now when there's motion, your cameras work. When nobody's around because it's dark, um, they don't need to operate. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a failure of of a design policy called uh, SEPTED or crime prevention through environmental design. And this is a part of the policies of most cities. They have a SEPTED program, mm-hmm. and ba- basically, what SEPTED says is light your environment so that you don't create any great contrast. Uh, what you want to have is subtle light that um, produces no sharp shadows, anything like that, where people can um, can hide. Um, and Septed says you have to have natural surveillance. So that means you have shorter bushes where you can't hide in. Your light um, basically floods your area, not creating glare. Um, but the natural surveillance means that either people can see what's going on uh, or cameras can see what's going on. Uh, so if you don't have any surveillance, uh, whether you've got light or not, makes no difference at all. You know, if, if no one's watching, anybody can do whatever they want on, on that property. And then natural surveillance is, is quite interesting because if no one is watching your camera, like you said at, at that other company, uh, the robbery happened in spite of lights and a camera. If nobody's watching that camera, why even have the cameras? Um so we have these strange, strange, strange policies in place that have so little benefit. And it's, it's simply they're, they're not done right. They're not thought through. You know, have, have lights good enough for your cameras, put them on motion detectors, have good enough cameras that you can identify who's, who's buying the steering wheel. Um, you know, so if, if my default is that if you don't have a good safety program in place, shut all your lights off because that's the best one. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Rick, we're getting closer to the end here of the podcast. Um, if there was, you know, some takeaways that you could leave the listeners with, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, call to action or, or what have you, what, what are some simple things, three things, five things, whatever it might be that listeners can do to, uh, you know, help the cause here. 
gosh, we've not even scratched the surface of, of, <laughs> of this whole issue. We, yeah. we didn't talk about um, the the effect on uh, on the birds and the bees and, and, and everything like that. You know, where mm-hmm. we've talked about crime, we've we've talked about um, uh, <laughs> all kinds of things already, but certainly not enough. So the takeaway really is, is that light pollution uh, is pervasive in everything. It affects your entire environment, no matter, no matter what it is. Um, and the effect is not necessary. Well, the, the effect of light pollution is not positive at all. Uh, light pollution is a total waste. So when you're looking at actions that you can do, uh, you can get involved uh, with almost anything. Um, when I fight light pollution in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan, I rarely talk about astronomy because astronomy is your reward for doing a good job in controlling light pollution. If you can control light pollution, you can do astronomy because you've got a dark sky. But to do that, um, my involvement is mostly talking about natural areas, the environment around, uh, preserving green spaces, uh, taking care of the animals in your in your environment, um, because it's all affected. You know the the life cycles of of all your flora and fauna is affected by how much light pollution you have. Crime in your city is affected by how much light pollution you have. Um, the the um, profitability of a company is affected by how much light pollution you have. Um, you look at every aspect, and you can work a light pollution um, angle into it. Um, and recently, we even had a couple of national news uh, stories about light pollution. Uh, one was um, a, a, a bad neighbor who erected, I think it's a like 10,000 candle power, something like that, light on his side of his building, something horrendously bright, hmm. um, just to annoy his neighbors. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it, he doesn't need the light, and he refuses to take it down. There's nothing they can do. Uh, that made national news because it's it's a big issue about how a municipality um, it, it has basically failed their their taxpayers. Um, you know, uh, um, the other sto- recent story was the one we talked about before about um, how how light pollution is just a, a, a runaway thing. So make make it a, a portion of your environmental argument in your community. You know, it's it is the easiest pollutant to remove. Um, the um, bylaws or policies that have in place are really simple. Um, basically, don't shine a light where it's not needed. Uh, don't allow lights to be shone onto your neighbor's property. Um, and that you know that that has to do with with uh, residences, with commercial buildings. Um, you know, civic lighting. Uh, it can all be controlled. Uh, the less light you use, the cheaper it's going to be, the less environmental damage it does. So get involved in every policy. When, when someone's going to build a skyscraper, ask them, what kind of light pollution are you going to um, create? Um, are you going to design your lighting so it doesn't shine out of your uh, building to cause bird strikes? Um, are you going to turn your lights off at night? You know, these are things that you can ask through your development policies. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter <laughs> every every issue that that civic politics brings up. Uh, you can go and say, "Well, what's your light pollution plan?" You know, designing a city. Um, why not design a city to be fun at night by producing 
less light and, and uh, fewer street lights, making it a, a fun decorated place as opposed to just a whole bunch of glaring street lights and you know ad hoc lighting by every business. Design your environment. So, but you know, and and again, if you're an amateur astronomer listening to this, write a letter. Mm-hmm. I, I want 100% of amateur astronomers to to write letters, not less than three percent. We'll never get the job done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all all great uh, advice there, Rick. Appreciate that. And and people should go to uh, to the Globe at Night uh, website. I think check out theglobeatnight.org. Uh, that that's something else that uh, that people can do. Check that out. Um, if we only had uh, four or five dozen listeners who who went on there and, and actually participated, then that would uh, probably help them uh, exceed the the goal uh, that, that they've set for this year. That'd be great. Well, we're uh, I think we're getting close to time. I, I think uh, we had more more questions for you, Rick, than we're probably going to have uh, have time to address. But uh, we'd uh, certainly always be happy to have you back on on the show if you were willing. Great. I hope this was a decent introduction um, to light pollution issues. I mean, we we went all over the place uh, ad- <laughs> addressing specific topics. Is, is is always something that you can get better into. Yeah. Um, but you know, I hope your listeners will take it to heart and go. Uh, I'm not going to put up with a bad environment anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need you to be responsible from the you know civic aspect and. Um, do something in your environment to, to get rid of this runaway light pollution problem that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, and Rick, you kind of touched on it lightly about the birds and the bees and, you know, we never really got into it on this episode. Um, but I really encourage anybody listening that, you know, if, uh, if this has kind of lit your fuse to, um, to do something about light pollution, to do some research on the impacts that it does have to like uh, natural rhythms in nature and how it impacts uh, animal life and insect life. Uh, It's quite profound and it's, uh, you know, I find it um, upsetting, but upsetting in a motivational way Uh, because Rick, you've delivered a number of presentations on light pollution that I've uh, been uh, an audience member of, and you get into some of those details and I'm, I'm always shocked, but it's, uh, it's far, the light pollution issue is far bigger than just our ability to see the stars. You know, the impact that it does have on our environment is uh, quite uh, quite big. And I don't know if, if everybody really recognizes it or, or is aware of that. So again, I encourage people to research that if, if this is a, a topic of interest. I think that's a really good point because the issue, if we approach it strictly from an astronomy point of view, we looked at a, a, a niche type of, of lobby group. If you approach it from an environmental point of view of your total environment um, and put it into every aspect of, of, of development, um, then we have a chance. You know, mm-hmm. You're not looked at as as, as quite as radical. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hilarious because um, I I was uh, at a meeting at work with my peers um, last week or the week before, and there was some there was something about light pollution in the news. Some astronomer was was uh, maybe it was about satellites. I don't remember. <laughs> and they were kind of making fun of me because they know I'm an astronomer. Uh, and they're like, so you want us to turn lights off so you can see the stars? <laughs> and I said, well, there's there's a lot more to it than that, guys. It's not just so I can see the stars. And I tried to educate them, but I don't know if they were really hearing me that day. <laughs> so so another day I will I will march into battle against them. <laughs> 
Good stuff. Well, Rick, do you have any uh, closing remarks and uh, before we wrap the show? Oh, wow. Closing remarks. <laughs> I, I told you before the podcast that I could talk for about seven more hours. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, as Shane said, I mean, this is, it's a huge problem and people seem not to really take it seriously. It makes the news every day somewhere. If you Google light pollution, uh, a, a current news story somewhere in, in Canada and North America will, will come up. Um, and there are countries all over the world that have addressed this. You know, uh, Australia has got a light pollution policy that protects wildlife. New Zealand has a nationwide light pollution policy. Um, uh, let's see, uh, Czech Republic does, France does. Um, it, there's probably two dozen countries around the world now that are protecting their environment because it's important. And light pollution is just as important as any other aspect of environmental protection. But we seem to really love um, growth over protection of the environment. And you can do both. Um, so we need to start recognizing that we can do both. You don't have to create one to create the other. Okay. Well, thanks so much for this, Rick. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and joining us today. I know you're uh, a fairly busy person with all your astronomy projects and a regular work life like Shane and I have. Um, and if listeners uh, have any questions for Rick or they want to see uh, or hear more of uh, uh, light pollution content, um, certainly uh, send us your emails to actualastronomy at gmail.com. And uh, we'd appreciate it if you could share uh, this show with anybody else uh, who might be interested because uh, light pollution is something that affects us all uh, beyond our, our astronomical interests. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>